Okay, let me, uh, I'm going to invite Trev up after I read the scripture. So if you have your Bibles, we'll be reading it, Psalm 51. It should be on the screen behind me, but I invite you to open that up for yourself as well. Beginning in verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit." Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. This is the reading of God's word. Let me pray and then travel come speak. Father, we, we give you this time as we open your word that this would be encouraging and convicting to our hearts to draw closer to you, I pray, as Trevor's prepared this week, uh, may we be receptive to hear what you're saying through him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Aaron. I, too, am very thankful to be one of the pastors here at Mission Hill Church. Uh, We are in a series uh, on what we're calling the Son of Jesse, Um, That is not a curse phrase, just so you know. It is the description of maybe the greatest king of Israel, and I think most Israelites would say that. He is the prototype king. He is one of the people in the Bible that many would ascribe to as a great example to follow until you get to 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, where he commits adultery, covers it over with murder, and tries to escape it. That's the part we generally exit out of the try and model our life after King David. However, uh, and I stole the title from uh, somewhere in Mississippi, but this is actually David's greatest victory, and it's his victory over his own sin. Uh, So I think there's actually as much, if there's one thing that we should model our lives after, it should be the way that he responds to his sin, actually. And so Aaron has read that for us. 
Um, the, the odd thing about this text is that there is a, a, a parallel, uh, not a parallel, there is a story of this in both uh, Kings, actually it doesn't show up as much in the, in the book of Chronicles, which is maybe a more technical version of what shows up in First and Second Samuel, First uh, and Second Kings. And uh, this particular text in Second Samuel chapter 11 and 12 actually has a corresponding psalm to it, and it's very difficult to find that. You need a technical commentary, or you need a Bible like mine that says, to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. I think it's fairly explicit that this is related to that story. Um, so what we have is we have a story and then we have how he prayed and how he responded personally. I think it's very valuable for us. And so what I want to do is I want to walk through the story first because I think it's important to understand that. And then I, I want to deal with this psalm in particular. And I want to shape it this morning by simply talking about what sin is or a full understanding of what sin is, how to deal with it, and what God promises when we do. What sin is, how to deal with it, and what God promises us when we do. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel uh, chapters 11 and 12, you can to kind of follow along. But here's what I'll do. I'll go kind of point, point by point. And, and he, here's what's interesting is 2, chapter, uh, 2 Samuel uh, 11 Starts like this, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. Now, that's really important, and if you know anything about Old Testament scriptures, you know that Old Testament writers typically are very spare in their details. That means they don't add a lot of extra detail that we might add. But when they do add a detail, it means a whole lot. That's the advantage of writing like this. So what's unusual about this verse is it, in, in typical Old Testament fashion, which is the, the narrators don't typically make a lot of comment on whether something is right or wrong, but they do write it in a way that, that shows you how they want you to respond, and there's something about the way this is written that we should go, huh. What he's saying is, normally speaking, if a king is really a king, he would be out at battle. Now, that being said, where's David. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. You know, one of the translations actually said when David woke up from his late afternoon nap. My question is, what's he napping from? What's he so tired from? <laughs> Getting up at 11, as George Costanza would say on Seinfeld? What do, what do you need a break from? Getting up at 11? Why is he napping? We don't know. We just know that he's napping at a time when the rest of his country is putting their lives in harm's way. That's what we know. Not only that, but they're fighting a battle that he actually started. If you go to chapter 10, there's a lot of technical information in 2 Samuel 10 that explains that this is a war that's half started. In other words, there's, there's work to be done and... You know, it, when it gets wintertime, it gets like this, right? Like, who wants to go to war like this? 
Like both parties can agree to that, right? Sorry, roads are icy. How about we shoot each other tomorrow? <laughs> right? We can agree on that. So Deb, David not only does that, he sends out Joab, which if we know the story, Joab is one of his most trusted advisors who started out as one of the guys in the cave of Adullam that Aaron spoke about a couple weeks ago. Uh, he sees a woman bathing, not necessarily unusual, uh, but the woman was very beautiful. He goes to find out about her and ends up inviting her to his place, sleeps with her, she gets pregnant, problems arise from this. The story's not done, though. David actually sends word then to Joab and says, hey, I've got a guy who I would like put at the front of the battle because I don't really know what to do with him. Can you put him in, a, in front of a battle Actually, tell you what, Joab, why, why don't you ask him to come back here first? I'll, I'll get him to go home for the night, and he'll be beside his wife, and perhaps one thing will lead to another, he hopes, and, and then we can deal with it later. Well, well, Uriah comes back. Now, what's interesting is the text actually says, Uriah the Hittite, meaning that Uriah actually isn't Jewish by birth. He's not Hebrew by birth. He's a convert. David's actually full Hebrew. And what the writer is doing is pitting these two against one another. How is it that Uriah the Hittite, the convert, the new Christian, so to speak, somehow comes home, but when he comes home, he refuses to go home because he says, how could I go home and enjoy the pleasure of my wife when everyone else I know is putting their life on the line? That would be so disrespectful to them. There are actually laws against this sort of thing in the Old Testament earlier. So David's kind of going, well, Uriah is kind of a shady guy. I'll just go home and he'll do his shady business. The only one shady in the process is David. It doesn't work. Twice. He, he gets him drunk. Still doesn't work. Somehow Uriah keeps his head about him. So David says, Joab, can you put him at the front of a battle? In fact, put him at the front of a battle that we have no business winning. This is not strategic. This is not, uh, we're not sure how this will turn out. This is a suicide mission. Designated suicide mission. And Uriah dies. And word gets back to David, which means Joab must have some sort of idea what's going on, but he's under a don't ask, don't tell policy. And then what happens is David uh, goes and marries this woman. She has a child and nobody knows anything, so to speak. But for some reason, the Lord sends a prophet to David as an act of grace and mercy, a prophet who knows the story without knowing the story. We're not sure how he knows. We're not sure if he got that word from the Lord or not. But what ends up happening is the prophet Nathan is a little bit... Uh, 
I would say he's wise. He's shrewd, so to speak. And how he does it is he tells a parable whereby he knows that in the way that he tells the parable, if there's kind of any righteous anger in David, it will come out. And so he, he tells a story of a rich man who had lots of sheep and a poor man who had one sheep. And this poor man who had one sheep just loved and loved and loved the sheep and, and, and cared for it. And it was, almost, it was a pet, which is weird for sheep in those days. And then time to sacrifice came, and the rich man decided, I'm going to take this poor man's sheep, I'm going to sacrifice it instead. And David, in a moment of righteous anger, says, that can't happen, that, that, that person deserves to die. Now David thinks this is a hypothetical situation told because there's actually someone like this and Nathan's asking how do I deal with it but Nathan then turns around and says actually I'm talking about you David this is you you or I had one wife you have more than one you could add any woman in the kingdom that you wanted and you decided to go after this one person, and this thing displeases the Lord. And David recognizes, we see at the very end of the story, I have sinned. Second Samuel, verse, or, or, Second Samuel 12, verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Now, you need that story in your mind if you're going to read Psalm 51 properly. Because it will begin to make sense now exactly what happens. So what we see throughout that story is a little bit of how sin is and how sin works. You see, we have good, little, good little staff discussion about this. And, and one of the Good questions, Julie asks, what, what happened to David? Where did it go all wrong? And, and the reality is, if you look at the story, you realize, actually, it did not start on that hot afternoon post-nap. David didn't have a moment of weakness. There was something else that was building up toward this. Again, there's no real detail on what was building up, but there seems to be a sense in which everything has been going well for David thus far, and perhaps he begins to think, well, I really am God's gift to this world. You ever have that happen in your life? Things are going, well, yeah, no, never. <laughs> Things are going really well at work. You're know, like, I, I should be CEO. And then something happens, and you realize that you have no business at all doing it. Something just snaps you back in. But there's a sense in which when things go well, we seem to have a tendency, it seems like it's corrupt from our hearts, that we think it's actually us. I can tell you from my point of view as a pastor, that amongst pastors, this is so prevalent that it's not funny. That pastors far too often think that the size of their church is on the basis of how important to God they are. I see it all the time. And I also see pastors fall. And the biggest question that comes is, how did this happen? 
I was talking with Aaron about this this morning. How does this happen? It happens again. This year, it's happened again. He said, did you hear about X, amount of X scandal? And I said, I have. And it's not getting easier, actually, as I hear about these things. Where does this happen? Well, I don't think it happened this year. I think it happened over the course of many years. And what I wonder is, at what point did David say, you know, I don't need your counsel anymore. I've got God. It looks spiritual, doesn't it? Right? You ever had that? Uh, I want to give you some counsel. No, no, no. I'll, I'll pray about it myself. I've heard that before. I've got this. No, no, no. I know what I'm doing. You, you see, this is, this is this. David is forgetting that he's on the throne, not because he earned his way to the throne. But he was anointed, which means that he didn't choose to be anointed. You can't. That's what being anointed means. Someone else anoints you. I think this comes in when we begin to talk about deserving things. Rather than realizing we have graciously been given all things. When we get to the point in our lives where we start saying to ourselves, you know, God owes me something. Ever said that to God? It's sinful, but you're like, yeah, but God, God kind of owes me this one. I, I'm, I'm not sure that he was not aware that he didn't sin. Some scholars say like, David doesn't realize that he's sinned. I'm like, ah, that doesn't make sense to me. I think he was aware that he sinned. Here's what I really think. But David, David's biggest sin was thinking, it's not that big a deal. You ever thought that about some of your sins? Like, like, like you, you've sinned, you felt really convicted about something, and then the next day you're like, eh, you know what, it's not that bad. And day after, you're like, everyone does it. Next day, you're like, basically, I had to sin. I had no choice. And you begin this self-talk of convincing yourself that your sin is not as dirty as God says it is. That's what I think happened to David. But when it says that David realized, I have sinned before the Lord I think the text is understating he really did understand, and the reason why is we have some proof here of it. And so that, in some ways, was not necessarily introduction as much as making sense of the rest of this, because the definition of sin that we have is fairly light, in my opinion, my own included, and in this psalm you have, especially in the ESV, this is one of the reasons why it's a good translation to teach from, is there's three words kind of for sin. There's sin itself, there's iniquity, and there's transgression. And they're actually very related. They're all cousins, but they're not the same person. Transgression should be translated as rebellion. You know, you know what rebellion is, right? Rebellion is, I don't, I'm not doing what you tell me to do, right? When your children rebel, that mean, usually means they leave home. Or at the very least, they ignore everything you're saying, right? 
Some of you, this is how you parent. I know my kids are rebellious, so I'll just tell them what I don't want them to do because that's what they're going to do. I know they're going to disobey me, so if I tell them don't do this, they will, and therefore I'll get my obedient children by saying, I want disobedient children. I have a friend who says, if you want me to do something, just tell me I can't. Tell me not to do it. That's transgression. That is not accidental, is it? You don't slip into rebellion. You decide to rebel. There's iniquity, translated waywardness. This has the idea of walking along the path, staying within the fence line or that little stupid little rope, right, they put to make sure you don't walk on the grass. That means stepping over that deliberately and walking the other way. And then there's sin, which is actually a word that we technically use now in archery. Did you know that? It means to miss the bullseye, right? So you shoot an arrow at the bullseye. You're aiming for the bullseye. You get rewarded for hitting the bullseye, and you miss. It's called a sin. It means what you were trying to do right, you couldn't, and you didn't. It's a pretty holistic way of understanding. And the reason why David says he has sinned is he understands, notice he doesn't say, I have not sinned against Uriah. I have not sinned against my people. I have not sinned against Joab. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. And some of you are like, whoa, 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 whoa. I thought, how did you sin against the Lord when it's all these people that you hurt? David is not saying that he did not hurt these other people. What David is saying is, I have committed cosmic treason. And if you've ever committed treason, I will have to tell the authorities if you talk to me, but if you've ever committed treason, that was a joke. Some of you are like a little nervous to talk to me after the service. But if you commit treason against your country, but in the process you commit fraud and you lie and you kill someone, you won't be tried for those things. You'll be tried for what? Treason. That's the biggie, right? We don't tolerate treason at all. And David's saying, I, I understand I have committed cosmic treason against the one whom I owe everything to. And in the process, I've hurt all kinds of people. I love the way Tim Keller defines it. He says, treason is overthrowing the rule of the one you owe everything to. So how do, how do we deal with it? And, and here's where we can finally get into the psalm. That he begins in verse 1, he says, Have mercy on me, O God. Mercy, what I do not deserve. Please give me what I cannot possibly deserve. According to What? According to your steadfast love. I talked to my Hebrew friend scholar this morning to ask if I say this right. The word there is chesed. Donnie, you can tell me later if I said that correctly. It's the Hebrew word for steadfast love, or I think a better translation is loyal love. That's covenant love, friends. That's covenant love. This word shows up in Exodus chapter 34. Just after his, God's people have severely disobeyed 
After Moses has already broken one set of the Ten Commandments. I mean, can you imagine that? You've got a set of, ten, set of commandments, you broke them, you have to get a second set? That's really breaking them. And God says, I will show steadfast love to my people. That's my covenant. In Iwana, we're talking about covenants. We have to make this clear. Covenants are not contracts. Contracts are where if I do this and you do this, then we're in agreement. But if you don't do this, I won't do this either. A covenant is I will do this no matter what you do. No matter what you do, no matter how disobedient you are, I will show steadfast love. Loyal love. David, smart. He's appealing to who God is. According to who my dad is. My loyal, loving dad. I love the way the... uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible says it, right? The never-stopping, never-ending, always-increasing love. I love it. It is the appeal. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. So the first thing David does is he appeals to God's chesed. He does not appeal on his own righteousness. He does not say, I'm pr- aren't you happy I'm, I said sorry? He says, if, if, if you aren't like this, I don't have a hope. If, if you aren't kind and gracious, merciful, if you aren't slow to anger, if you aren't patient, if you don't love giving mercy, then, then I, I'm not going to get it. I think it is something that is in some ways irresistible to God. You know, as a parent, I can say, when you start appealing to me and start saying how dad's habits are cool, you got me. I will buy you anything, and my girls know it. (laughs) Oh, dad, I love your library. Can we go shopping? (laughs) Right? Something about that, isn't there? Moms, dads, friends, there's something. When people appeal to who you are, you're like, oh, yeah, they get me. Yeah, yeah. What do you want? <laughs> my wallet's open. My schedule's open. I think the second thing we see is, is, is that David accepts God's right to be offended with him. I, I mean, how many of us just do not accept God's right to be offended? Like, what's his problem? Like, doesn't he know his standard is so high that I can't meet it? Yes. Why is he so bothered by this? But he's, he, he's, he's not saying that God just has a right to bring about justice, but actually has a, has a right to be personally offended by this. Why? Because he's committed cosmic treason. You should always be this honest with God. God. I guess when it comes down to rights to be offended, I, I give you the highest honor there. I'm offended, but you you have every right to be offended. The third thing we see there is 
that David agrees with God's evaluation of his sin. You see that in verse 3 and 4. I I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. I mean, that's a poetic way of saying. You ever have that kind of sin that follows you around? Won't leave you alone? Every time you get a little break in your schedule, it just bugs you again. It just nags and nags and nags at you. That's what David says. I know my sin. My sin keeps following me around everywhere. And if you read the rest of the story, you find it follows him all the way to his death. Sometimes his sin is right in front of him. His sin is in his whole family line. David says something in verse 4. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. There is something very important about recognizing that God has a right to do justice in your life as he sees fit. That, that is a moment where, unless you are humble enough to admit that, you can't honestly do that. Neither can I. Neither can I. You know, there's, I, I, I've stood in court very few times in my life, but it, it was for like a, a, a bad sea train ticket. That's it. And I was terrified. <laughs> And the judge was like, what's your plea? And I'm like, what do you mean? I didn't pay. I'm really sorry. I don't know what else to say. I can't imagine what this is like for those who stand before the cosmic God. And God says, so what say you? What do you got? But that's what this confession is. It's saying, God, Whatever sentence you deem necessary is right. It's daunting. And the reason why he says that is in verse 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. My friend Steve is here, so I can tell this. Last, uh, I did preach on this particular psalm a couple years ago, and I said, this is the kind of verse that doesn't show up on coffee cups. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. There is one coffee cup in the world now as a result of my friend Steve. I forgot to bring it today because I'm a little distracted. And I said, what, what, what would be on that kind of cup? Like a vulture with carcasses? And there's a vulture eating carcasses on a mug that says, behold, I was brought forth. In iniquity. I laugh every time. I see it. But the subject matter is not really that laughable. What David is saying is, no, I sinned, but sin is in my DNA. You go, you go to the deepest recess of me, sin is in me, and it will be until you do something about it. This is why I'm helpless, God. In sin did my mother conceive me. Not, she, she didn't sin by conceiving me. She was in sin and she conceived me and passed it on. 
you know, the diseases that are genetic. Sin's a genetic disease starting with Adam. That's what the Bible says about us. Some of us don't even want to believe that. He says it's, it's in there, so deep. Romans 5.18, one trespass led to condemnation for all. And so David does something called confession. And here's what confession is. Confession is saying the same thing. To confess something is to say the same thing. So what David is saying is, I'm saying the same thing as you did, God. I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. You see, true confession, friends, is, is not full of these clauses that we have, these asterisks that we put on. Uh, things like, I'm only sorry for what I've done, but not really for who I am. I'm really a good person. I just made a few mistakes. That's not actually true confession, according to David. It's not, I'm sorry I got caught. That's also some of the way we confess, right? I'm sorry because I got caught. David could be that person, but he's not sorry because he got caught. And he sure doesn't say it. He says, I'm not sorry I got caught. I'm, I'm sorry I, I offended God who gave me everything. Not I'm sorry so I can get myself out of my situation. Did you ever do this as a kid when your parents made you apologize to your brother and sister? Brother or sister? Say you're sorry. I'm sorry. Now can I have my juice? Right? I'm sorry, God, now can I have my job back? I'm sorry, now can I have my marriage back? I'm sorry, now can I have my friend back? There's a sense in which we can get caught up into that kind of confession, and David is, I'm sorry. Sorry, I'm sorry I am who I am. You know, the... The, the New Testament in James says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. But what's interesting is we think that that means sometimes that righteous person is talking about someone who doesn't make any mistakes. So make very few mistakes and then you, your prayers are powerful. But actually, the verse before that is therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has power. I mean, there's, there's something in the confession that makes you righteous. And what is that confession? What is that makes you righteous? Because here's where the gospel is really important for us to understand because the way righteousness works is we don't get righteousness from the things that we do. We get righteousness imputed to us. Imputed is a fiduciary word. Are you really impressed? That means financial. Right? Like, like if you go on your bank account, you check your bank account, all of a sudden there's a million dollars in there and someone's like, yeah, I imputed one million dollars into your account. I gave it to you. That's what righteousness is like. It's like having a bank account with the negative and all of a sudden it's plus to the millions because someone else gave it to us free of charge. That's how we get righteousness, friends. 
And that righteousness only comes through faith. So if you believe God is who he says he is, he imputes his righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who never sinned. He never had to confess like this. Never. He gave his righteousness to us if we believed that Jesus was the only mediator who could get us back in right relationship with God. That's the gospel, friends. What we also see is that David then asks for a miracle, which is what I'm talking about. In verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit. The word create is really important there, and it should take us back to the very beginning. Create in me the kind of heart that you did in Adam originally is what he's saying. What was that like? It was a heart that loved God. Actually, it was a a, a, a hased heart. A heart that loyally loved God back. He said, give me that loyal heart back for you. Which is a miracle. It's a miracle. It means you'll have to have a brand new heart. Which is why he says, wash me cleanly, blot blot out my rebellion, create this clean heart, purge me with hyssop. That has images of two things. One of them being hyssop is, is the branch that they use to ceremonially declare lepers cleansed from their disease. That's what you touch them with. And lepers, it wasn't just a disease. The real issue with leprosy was it, it, excommunicated you from community until that disease was dealt with, until you were fully healed. And when you were fully healed, then a priest would symbolically touch you with hyssop branch, declaring you back into the community. It's also the branch, by the way, that was used during the Passover, used to spread blood on the doorpost so that when the spirit of death came over, he would pass over those who had declared faith in the God who said, spread the blood on your doorpost. In every way, David's like, remember when you created people? Remember when you passed over? I need that heart. I need that heart. And if you don't give it to me, I won't get it. There's a desperation here. But there's also some promises. Because there is the promise to forgive. Says a broken, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. You see, David's in the sacrificial system. And the sacrificial system is, I deserve to die, but as a way of as a way of executing the justice on my life, someone will have to pay for it and an innocent animal of some sort often paid or grain. And, and David says, I know, I know. I know those sacrifices aren't really what you're looking for. I know what you're actually looking for is the heart that wants to sacrifice. And so he says, if this was about sacrificing, I would do it. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it, he says. You're not really looking 
for me to kill animals. You're looking for me to recognize that I need my heart fixed. I've got a DNA heart defect that cannot be fixed by anything I do. John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. If we confess our sins, not, not like if we say them out loud. Like, like here's a tip, Christians, if you're here this morning, going through the motions only fools you and us, but not God. Going through the motions doesn't, doesn't do anything for God. He, he sees right through it. This, this is one of the reasons why we always caution people when they take things like the Lord's table. Don't come and take this thinking that by doing this, you will beat the system. In some ways, the Bible says, if, if you do this without even thinking about it, in some ways you actually bring condemnation because you're proving that you don't really care. So there is a seriousness to, to this, but it's not a seriousness that should scare us as much as say, just, just be real, just be real. He promises to create clean hearts. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, his flesh. And since we have such a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Did you know that the sacrificial system could not clean your conscience? No amount of washing could clean consciences. That's something that is supernatural and miraculous, isn't it? How, how could David face the rest of his family after having deliberately ordered someone to be murdered and stolen away their wife. Why? Only God could clean his conscience. Only God could say you're forgiven. See, Jesus is this great high priest. This is why it's always about Jesus. Jesus is the great high priest who says, I will sacrifice on behalf of you, the sinner, but he says, I won't sacrifice something else. I will be the sacrifice for you. And this will be a once and for all sacrifice that prevents anyone from ever having to try to go forward and try and do stuff anymore. This means you believe in me, you can have this. He promises to restore relationship, friendship. You know, David is known as a man after God's own heart, but sometimes we think that that means he's a man after God's own heart because he was so faithful. I don't think that. I think he was a man after God's own heart because he got God. You know, there's a, a couple of years ago, uh, I was having this debate with one of my daughters. And... Uh, we were having a debate over social media stuff and I was ready to remove an app because I felt it was being invasive to her and hurting her. And she was, she was angry. She was really angry. You can't do this, Dad. You're excommunicating me from my, like, my life is over, right? 
can't do this. And I was like, I'm not getting through to her. I'm not getting through to her. I'm not getting through to her. And finally I said, do you understand that I would die for you? That I am only, I am only trying to protect you from these mean boys. And I know boys because I was one. I know what they're like because I was like that. I'm trying to protect you. I'd do anything for you. I'd die for you. Never forget. She's angry, angry, angry. And at that moment, her eyes went wide. She leapt off the couch, jumped into my arms, and said, I love you, Dad. Okay. And at that moment, I was like, oh, she gets me. She gets it. She gets who I really am. David is a man after God's own heart because God says, this man gets me. He knows that what I want is loyal love. And I I know that it's impossible unless I give it. This man knows that I forgive sin and I'm patient. This man knows that only I can clean hearts. This man knows that no amount of outward sacrifice will ever get anyone closer to me. This man knows that only I can bridge the gap that he has made. He gets me. He gets me. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. Is that you too, this morning, you can have a heart like David's. You can be a person after God's own heart if you want. But it will come through a process a lot like this. And this takes time to figure out. This takes, you got to be real about it. We want to encourage you to be real about it. And that's why we celebrate communion as often as we do. It's that important. It's a time of reflection. It's a time to essentially say to ourselves, to our community, I need need a clean heart. I need a clean heart. And, And no amount of anything that I've been doing in my life has gotten me close the way I know I should be. And so, God, here I am again, two weeks later, And I'm probably in the same position I was in or maybe even worse. And I'm coming to you again. And therefore, I'm only appealing to you, God, on your your hesed, on your loyal love. That that is either an alarm for me to stop preaching or (laughs) something. And this is how the psalm ends. David actually says, this is amazing. He says, if you do this, if you do this in verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways. Then I will sing. He's not talking about singing by himself. He's talking about singing in the community. What David is saying is, if you do this for me, it will help others. One of the reasons, not the only, but one of the reasons why we celebrate the Lord's table together is so that you see other people do it. And there should be a sense of I'm not crazy moment when you see all the people line up to do this. You're like, oh yeah, yeah, they need a new heart too. Oh yeah, uh, they need a new heart too. I know that person's story and I'm so glad that they need a new heart too. 
So there's a sense in which we don't want you to celebrate communion just thinking of yourself, but thinking, isn't God's grace and mercy amazing that he has done this for us? And here's the thing. We're not the only church in our city or our neighborhood. There are millions across the world that are doing the same thing. That's just the start of God's hased, his gracious, kind, patient love toward you that will never end if you want it. And if you do, would you pray with me and I'll call the band up. Good Heavenly Father, we appeal to you. My hope this morning is on less and less percent of me and more percent of you. I know, I know the depth of my own sin, but not even as much as you do. I don't know the depth of everyone's sin here, but I know that you do. And I know that what you ask for is a broken and contrite heart, a heart that admits and confesses what you say about them and their sin and their issue and their ability to get close to you. But I also know that your righteousness is real. I've experienced it because I believe. Help my unbelief. So this morning I would pray on behalf of all my friends here that believe and need more faith, that struggle with sins that chase them around, that you would continually clean out their hearts as broken as they might be, and that you would do so on the basis of who you are. Jesus, I, I want to pray on behalf of Mission Hill. We want to get you. We want to get what you're really like. Would you be kind to show us? We ask these things not on our ability to ask, but on your ability to give. And so it's in that powerful name that we ask these things. Amen.